Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Chris Henning, a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. She had her law degree from uh, from Yale Law School. Jack, I think that means with her here, the average IQ in the room went up considerably. No doubt. And uh, she uh, has been representing children accused of crime for more than 25 years and is here to talk about how America has criminalized black children. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Jack, um, I know at your age, you probably have dinner by 3 and in bed by 8 p.m., but um, I stay up later. I uh, have a... uh, I'm a big fan of a late-night comedian, Seth Meyers. And I was thinking about uh, Seth Meyers uh, when we invited Chris to be on our show because he has a head writer, Amber Ruffin. Right. A delightful um, comedian um, in her own right, a black lady. And um, back in June of 2020, when um, George Floyd was murdered, Seth Myers had a segment each night where Amber Ruffin talked about her encounters with the police. And she had she, hundreds of encounters. But she talked about it with such humor and grace. And as a white man, I was struck by how deep-rooted and justified her fear of the police, uh, encountering the police was. First, when do I get to rebuke you for saying that I go? To, I have dinner at three and I'm in bed by eight? <laughs> Truth's an absolute defense. Oh, okay. Well, you know, none of that should be surprising. When you think of the guests we've had, we've been bumping up against this subject all along. You know, we had Jim McNamara, the criminal defense lawyer. He talked about his clients being abused by police for one simple reason. They were black. We heard from Tim Young, Ohio's public defender, about how it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. And the situation becomes worse for defendants if they're black. They're treated worse by police and through the criminal justice system. So I didn't see, although I've I've seen Amber Ruffin before, I haven't seen the shows that you're talking about, but it doesn't surprise me. Chris, you have a little bit different perspective than what uh, Jack and I have, um, uh, the people we've talked to on our show, and you deal with um, children and black children that are facing these uh, uh, same uh, fears when they encounter the police. Is that right? That's exactly right. I've been representing kids in Washington, D.C. for, like, as you said, you know, more than 25 years, and I see it every day. One of the things that struck me, um, I think I might have seen a video that you posted, was that in those 25 years, you've represented very few white children. Um, They're mostly black and brown children. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe why? 
Yeah, you know, in in almost 26 years, I have only represented four white children. That is an absolutely staggering uh, statistic. Every other client I have represented has been black in the nation's capital. That would lead you to believe either that uh, there are no white kids in Washington, D.C., or that white children don't engage in criminal behavior. And, the, um, and we know that neither one of those are true. I mean, the, the reality is we criminalize normal adolescent behaviors. And when I talk about normal adolescent behaviors, I ask people to think about what did they do when they were kids, right? All of the silly, you know, knuckleheaded things that they did when they were kids that really technically could be a crime. Um, and for which nobody, you know, would arrest you, send you to court. But we see that so often in, um, you know, throughout the country with, with black and brown children. And when I think about the criminalization of black youth, I'm also thinking about the over-policing. You know, there are just generations of black and brown children who live in pockets of our country where they are under the constant surveillance and intervention of police officers. And um, there's so many reasons. I mean, we could you know, unpack, you know, why it is from racial bias to, um, you know, fear, irrational fears of, of black and brown children. And, and it also, to be quite frank, in some intentional ways, an effort to reserve and preserve resources um, for the wealthy and for the privileged in our country um, to the exclusion of, of, of black children. You know, when you say knucklehead things, I'm thinking of a story Gonzo told us months back. What was that story about stealing a gas cap or taking it from another car and putting it on your car? The police didn't do anything about it, right? Well, they uh, asked me to uh, put it back if I happened to find it. But I'm guessing <laughs> that in the right city, and if you were a different color, that might have been a bigger deal. I would have to think that that's true, although I also think that there's over-policing in general anymore. Uh, Chris, a lot of what you say I see in our schools where now we have resource officers where something that used to be handled by the vice principal, the kids sent to detention, maybe called to their parents, is now becoming a criminal offense. And uh, I would uh, think that that's disappointing proportionately affecting our black and brown youth, but it's also affecting all youth. And it drives me crazy when I get calls from parents and, and there's some criminal uh, charges in a school that just should have been handled differently. It's so true. And we forget that we cannot police our way out of adolescence, right? <laughs> adolescence has to run its natural course. And everything that we know about adolescence tells us that there is an uptick in you know uh, delinquent and criminal behavior in those teenage years um and that sort of uh uptick really lasts until the early 20s so think about your college years i can extend it even further and all of the beyond knucklehead things you know that that you know we did when we were in college and then you know it it drops the criminal and delinquent behavior drops but why you know is it that we rely on traditional law enforcement responses to regulate to intervene in normal adolescent behaviors i mean adolescents are going to be impulsive, reactive, emotional, sensation seekers, risk takers, all of those things. Um, but, you know, we as a country, we look to the police uh, to regulate. And you're absolutely right 
about the disproportionate impact on black and brown children. Um, and, and to be quite frank, there is a historical connection um, between police officers in schools and uh, the overrepresentation of arrest or the disproportionate arrest of black or brown children. Um, I will tell you that I, for the longest time, accepted the, the, the often repeated story that we have police in schools today because parents and teachers were afraid to send their kids to school after the mass shooting in Columbine. Um, but when I started writing you know, my book, The Rage of Innocence, I saw and, and recalled that the first police in schools actually appeared in 1939 in Indianapolis when there was the earliest conversation about the possibility of desegregating schools, right? And then school resource officers increased exponentially in the civil rights era under the guise of facilitating um, safe passage and um, ensuring meaningful integration. But we know from the, the, the iconic photographs and from the historical record that very often police were an impediment to full meaningful integration. Um, and then we have the National Association of School Resource Officers is created in 1991. That's eight full years before Columbine. Right. And then we have in the mid 1990s, we see a temporary uptick in crime. We've got the pseudo scientific super predator myth that said black children are going to rape, maim and kill, you know, all of America. Um, and even the you know, even that myth was withdrawn. Princeton professor John DiUlio withdrew um, his own myth. Um, his own prediction um, within a year, and the prediction never came true, but yet we have police in schools. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a real racial connection between the presence of police officers in schools now. And I got to say, the last thing I'll say on this is we know that more police in schools means more arrest in schools, more arrest in schools means more arrest of black and brown children. I have some personal experience with that, Chris. Uh, when I was a freshman in high school, the Columbus Public Schools desegregated. Mm -hmm. I was at a predominantly white school in the suburbs of Columbus, and the uh, children from the minority areas and the black children were bussed into our school, and the police were there day one to make sure everybody behaved themselves, and it was very odd to me and most of my friends because we had been playing football and so we had maybe a month before that or two had already integrated with the new students and became friends with them. And it was like, what what are the police doing here? What What is the fear? And I, I do think that athletics is at least a, a great equalizer and in, in, uh, in a normalizing uh, effect on people. But uh, I'm thankful that I played sports, that I got to know people that I would never have met in high school had that the segregation not have occurred. Chris, uh, that's a news flash about there being an association for school resource officers and when that was put together. Really, I'm just stunned to hear that. But let's make a little more tangible the things you're talking about. And that is, you know, you're saying that kids are getting arrested for the everyday kind of knucklehead things that we all did. Well, present company excluded, of course. So give us a couple examples of how black and brown children are con being confronted with police where maybe white kids aren't. 
Yeah, happy to give a couple of examples. I actually open my book, The Rage of Innocence, with a story about a client that I call Eric. And Eric was a 13-year-old boy who, um, on a Saturday night, was watching a movie and he sees someone make a Molotov cocktail. And he says, oh, that looks cool. Let me see if I can make something that looks like that. He goes into the kitchen, he grabs a glass bottle and he begins to pour whatever liquids he can find, right? Pine salt, bleach, you know, water, whatever. Um, and he makes this little concoction. And my favorite part of the story is that he takes a piece of toilet paper and he runs the toilet paper from the inside of the bottle to the out and he closes the cap. Well, we know, and he knew, that that toilet paper was going to burn out before it ever reached the, the cap, right? But he also tapes up the bottle so that it looks like a Molotov cocktail. He's 13 years old. He plays with it, and then he forgets about it, right? He puts it in his book bag so the liquids won't spill out on his mother's white carpet. He um, On Monday morning, his mother drives him to school, and he puts his book bag through the metal detector, right, the, with the presence of a school resource officer. The school resource officer says to, to him, hey, what is this? To which he immediately says, oh, that's nothing. You can throw that away. And he goes on to class. Little did he know that was the beginning of a nine month ordeal in our local courthouse. He was charged with attempted arson. He's charged with um, uh, a possession of a Molotov cocktail. He gets uh, the fire department shows up. The police department shows up. They uh, drag him out of a school and, and arrest him. So here's the kicker. That's a young African-American 13 year old. Sometime later, I am giving a talk and um, in Connecticut, and I tell this story and a woman comes up to me, a white woman comes up to me and she says, my son did the exact same thing. And I said to her, what happened to him? And she said that he was put in an advanced science class, a chemistry class, you know? And it just, for me, it was such an incredible sort of wake up call about the, the disparate ways in which we treat and respond to black and brown children. We rewarded the creativity um, for the white child and yet we criminalized it. And it's a criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors. You know, they weren't willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, so it's just a, you know, a, a, a real perfect example of, of, that, of that difference. You had some other examples, I thought, too, Chris, that were seemed to me even to be more ridiculous. I Looking over here at Jack, thinking about his hairdo, you've had clients that have gotten in trouble for the way they wear their hair. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, you know, <laughs> I talk about, I ask people when we talk about sort of the criminalization of normal adolescence, think about what you cared most about when you were a kid right? You care about your hair, you care about your clothes, you care about your friends and who you sit with um, in the cafeteria, you care about your music, right? But mm -hmm. all of those behaviors um, are, are, are criminalized for Black and Brown children. And so particularly you ask about hair, um, there are regulations in many schools um, that uniquely criminalize sort of styles that are um, a part and parcel of Black adolescent culture, like maybe a high 
top fade or or having uh, for the young boys um dreadlocks um um having your uh, a design not mm-hmm. a profane design not an inappropriate design but any kind of design sort of like your initials carved into the uh, or shaved into the the side of your head um there are stories of two you know black sisters from massachusetts um who had um uh, braided extensions in their hair um and then got you know suspended from all extracurricular activities and um for for having those extensions while white children had you know little extensions colored little hair pieces i gotta stop i gotta stop you for a second so what's the rationale given by the school board when they tell these girls or young women forgive me that their hairstyles are unacceptable what's the rationale Right there. I mean, to be quite frank with you, right, there isn't one. That's the problem. Right. So they'll say that it's a distraction. You know, they'll talk about how, you know, colored hair extensions or um, additions to one's hair can be distracting to other kids. No rationale to explain why that's distracting. Um, But and and particularly for young African-American girls who add braids and extensions to their hair, there's nothing distracting about it at all. You often can't even tell that it's, you know, um, an extension or an add on. So to be quite frank with you, there is no justification whatsoever. Um, uh, rational justification, I should say. Now the lawyer is coming out at me, right? <laughs> There's no rational relationship to the rule in question. <laughs> so I assume then, because you said there's over-policing, that must mean that, to put it in, bl- in plain terms, the police are just picking on black kids more than they're looking at white kids for infractions. And I, I think it's is that know, first of all, me, did I say that correctly? Yeah, no, 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 that's that's what I'm saying. But you know, I think you know, to be fair and to be more nuanced about it, um, because what you described is absolutely the essence of it, but that it is in an effort to um enhance public safety, right? That's the rationale. Um, and so that um police officers are looking for um suspicious behavior, indicators, for example, that you know, criminal activity is afoot. The problem, however, is normal adolescent behaviors. Um, are perceived to be um, are, are perceived to be dangerous. Ambiguous behaviors are perceived to be dangerous. So kids hanging out on a street corner, laughing, listening to their music, right? You know, hip hop music is perceived to be a danger or to perceived to be a, a, a threat. Um, you know, and and so I mean, and there's research, there's empirical research documenting the ways in which you know black uh, children in a group are perceived to be more dangerous. Um, there's research demonstrating the ways that black children are perceived to be older and significantly older than they actually are. By like four years, four and a half years older than they actually are. Some of that research was done after Tamir Rice was killed, right? Mm. So he's this 12 year old boy in Cleveland who's playing with a toy gun. Another adolescent activity that young boys in particular have done throughout America American history, but he's playing with a toy gun and the perception is that he is criminal. And let me really um, uh, say this to you, that when I talk about policing, I'm often talking about the blue uniform, but I'm also talking about all of us who walk through a park and who are afraid of black children. So in Tamir's case, a civilian called and said there is a black child or there's a, there's a black male um, with a gun, probably fake 
probably a child, right? And the officers race to the scene and um, they perceive this 12 year old boy to be older than he actually is and don't take the time to pause and react. So yes, there are now generations of black children in certain parts of our city who see police officers multiple times a day. So Chris, um, one of the things that struck me when you just said that was an experience. I don't think I've told you this, Jack. I was um, out at my house. I forget what I was doing out front. And a um, young man, black man, was coming down the street and just running. And I think he lived maybe on a block or two over. I've seen him in the neighborhood, so he's either there a lot or not. And when he got around to where I was, he stopped and walked and looked over at me as if to say, I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. And I just smiled at him and said, man, you know, you're going to get in shape if you run everywhere or something like that. I made some comment to him and he smiled and then started running again. But it, until you just said that, Chris, it, it didn't really strike me as he now is worried about me reporting him or doing something that's going to get him in trouble. Well, that's also, yeah. that's also what happened with George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. He just figured that a kid with a hoodie and black had to be a problem. That's absolutely right. And and this phenomenon, you know, that you're talking about, Gonzo, going back to you, is what is literally, and I didn't realize it until I started doing some research and writing on the question, is called stereotype threat. It is the idea, the phenomena that, you know, black Americans live with the pervasive fear that they will be perceived as criminal solely because of the color of their skin. And so they begin to engage in regular self-regulatory behaviors so that other people don't think they're guilty, right? Like stopping running and, 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 and you know, things of that right. nature. Um, but it actually, unfortunately, often makes them look more guilty, right? So people say that behavior is, is odd or suspicious. You know, when I think about it, that's a hell of a burden for a young man to bear, to be in your neighborhood, Gonzo, and to think that he has to say something to put you at ease. I mean, I, I can't think of times that I've been in that situation. I mean, you go where you want. And for that gentleman, well, that... It it's a is. And Chris, you had said something um, earlier that uh, hyper uh, surveillance, I think, is the term you use. That's right. Is a part of over policing. What do you mean by that specifically? So the ways in which, right, all of us, um, uh, again, police black children. So you walk through a park and you see a child in a hoodie, right? And you automatically think, hmm, let me call the police. Let me call 911 because they appear to be out of place. So that's one area. Um, the hyper surveillance also means the policing in a, in a blue uniform, the over-reliance on police officers to do things, to be quite frank, that we don't need them to do. like. Um, uh, policing adolescents in a school, responding to routine discipline, that kind of thing. I mean, there are some children, many of my clients report living in neighborhoods where they see police officers multiple times a day. They might see a police officer when they go into a convenience store, on their way out of a convenience store, they get stopped, asked, 
where are you going? Where are you coming from? They get asked to lift up their shirt so that the officer can see their waistband and make sure that they aren't carrying a weapon. Like there's no presumption of innocence. And so our children talk about living under this constant watch um, and surveillance. So is anybody undertaking a study to see whether resource officers are more are more hindrance than good? I mean, I, yes, I, would, I would bet you're in that camp, but who who else is looking at the issue? Yeah, so there is. There's a, a growing body of research specifically on that question. The question is whether or not school resource officers make us any safer, make schools any safer. And then on the other hand, what harms are associated with police and schools? And so with regard to the first question, the research shows, look, there is little to no evidence that a presence of a school resource officer actually can prevent the kinds of high profile mass shootings that police officers were supposedly sent there. And in fact, in, in Columbine and Sandy Hook, there were actually school resource officers present, but they weren't able to stop those kinds of offenses. Um, also, the research shows that actually police presence increases stress and anxiety, compromises the school climate, which makes it harder for kids to learn. It also increases, like we already talked about, the, the likelihood that a, a kid will be disciplined for normal behaviors, arrested, referred to court for normal behaviors, all of which actually increase the risk that a child will drop out and never come back. Right. Um, and so all of those make us all less safe in the long run and, and not uh, uh, and not, you know, any safer. Um, there's also been, you know, evidence that police officers simply are not trained to engage appropriately or developmentally no. with young people. So you see use of force, use of, um, of, of, of body or physical techniques with a young person that should never be used on a child, like dog, canine dogs, or body slam procedures, or handcuffing children under the age of 12, things of that nature that are just not developmentally appropriate. You know, it's funny you say that because we've had, we've read in our own newspaper about that sort of thing, youngsters being arrested. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised because police officers have sort of one mode of operating. And it's not right. tailored to little kids. That's right. I always say police officers are, are police officers 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? Because that's how they're trained, right? Um, and so they don't realize um, that they're, that, you know, guess what? They're, the adolescent brain is still forming. Kids are emotional impulsive. You have to meet the child where they are. Um, they're not trained in what we call adolescent de-escalation uh, techniques. So think about when your kid gets mad and throws a temper tantrum, slams a door, right? We don't like body slams them and put them in handcuffs, haul them off to jail, right? You de-escalate those behaviors with all the strategies you learn in parenting. And we just don't seem to employ that when you put on a blue uniform or get certified as an officer. So we have one size fits all policing, but when it gets to the court system, we actually have a juvenile system. Uh, Chris, in your experience, has the juvenile court system been able to recognize these problems and adjust or, or address them? 
No, and I think the the juvenile court system over the years has only exacerbated the racial disparities that we're talking about, right? So at every single stage of the of the legal system, um, we treat black and brown children more harshly. So at the the pretrial detention phase, at the guilt innocence phase, at the sentencing and disposition phase, you see um, disproportionality. You also you you know you're absolutely right, Gonzo. We treat we created juvenile courts precisely because we as a country understood that children were different from adults. And the goal and the mission for our juvenile court is to be rehabilitative, right? And not punitive. Yet, the data shows that we are far more likely to transfer or to prosecute a child as an adult, right? Um, we will transfer them from juvenile court up to adult court to face the same sort of lengthy juvenile life without parole sentences or um, solitary confinement in an adult facility. And folks may remember in New York, Khalif Browder, right? He was 16 years old. He was prosecuted as an adult. He was held pre-trial, pre-trial without a finding of guilt or innocence for three years and a significant portion of that he spent in solitary confinement. And the, when he got out, he committed suicide, right? The, the, the trauma that black and brown children face around policing and incarceration is just profound. So I gotta ask, you're probably a regular fixture in the juvenile court in Washington, D.C. So when the judges see you, for lack of a better phrase, are they on their best behavior? Or do you still encounter the same problems that other attorneys encounter when they're representing black and brown kids? Oh, that's such a great question, Jack. I think, you know, um, one, I'll, I'll say in, in, in my court, we're beginning to have these conversations. And so although I practice directly in court regularly, um, I also am now increasingly invited into spaces where we can have a policy conversation about what we're doing as a community in ways that are over criminalizing black and brown youth. And so I get an opportunity to meet with our judges and our police officers and our prosecutors and, um, and to have these conversations. So, but on your question, you know, I think our, our, our problem is a macro problem. So it doesn't matter that I'm in the courtroom. It doesn't matter. The problem is at the front door. I already said that in, in 20, almost 26 years, I've only represented four white children. That's a huge problem, right? That, that we're not gonna uh, uh, solve by any one judge being on their best behavior, right? Um, so um, the answer is I try my best. I get hopefully get the best outcomes for the young people that I represent, but we have such a macro problem um, that we've got to solve. But yet if it is, well, it is a macro problem, but it sounds to me like you've got limited tools to convey your message. I mean, you've written this wonderful book. Say again the name of the book for everybody listening. Sure, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Okay, so you, you've got a book, it's worth reading, but it's slow to make change. What other vehicles of communication do you have to get the word across? How do you make, how do you make, a, a, how do you make a dent in the problem? Yeah, 
um, also a great question, Jack. I so I think it's it's a it's a several things. One is um, a lot of the training is beginning to make a difference. I can see a difference. The prosecutors are beginning to make different decisions um, because we as a community are having the hard conversation. So that's one. You got to have the prosecutors at the front door who are the gatekeepers of juvenile court jurisdiction. We also have to have officers who um, are um, understanding that there are alternatives to law enforcement responses to normal adolescent behaviors so that they can focus their resources on those small number of serious offenders. That's where the resources from law enforcement need to go. Um, you make a dent in it by having city council and um, our, our local uh, lawmakers allocate resources um, away from and this is not a defund the police, this is not an abolitionist argument, it's a reallocation of resources to make sure we have adequate mental health services, social emotional learning, vocational opportunities, restorative justice, all of those interventions that are proven to be more effective in preventing crime among young people than traditional law enforcement, right? I just thought of something kind of a tough question. Do you find that black police officers and, and perhaps black jurists succumb to the same bias that we're talking about when we normally associate that bias with white people? Yes, we do see it. And in, in a city where I live, right, we're sort of a rare um, entity, if you will, um, because we have, you know, a black mayor, we have black chief judge, a black, you know, chief of police, um, and we still see the same sorts of racial disparities. And so the research shows that especially um, when we're talking about perceptions of criminality, that the association, the misassociation between blackness and criminality is so strong in our subconscious that even um, black and brown officers engage in the types of disparate policing. Um, you know, so there, so yes, it's it still happens, unfortunately. Chris, do you uh, teach this as part of uh, what you do at Georgetown Law? Is this something that um, the research and the um, the uh, issues that we're talking about is a part of the curriculum? It, it is, um, and so I teach a year-long uh, juvenile defense clinic. And so we not only have a seminar component of our class, but then we also take students into court and we represent um, our, the young people. And yes, unequivocally, I do not think you can teach a class about the juvenile or criminal legal system and not talk about the racial implications, right? Not just the disparate policing, um, but also what it means in the Fourth Amendment search and seizure class context, right? So I'm here with two lawyers. I can talk about, right? What does it mean to be seized by the police, right? It means that um, you know, a reasonable person does not feel free to leave when they are approached by the police. And so I asked the question, would a black child ever really feel free to leave when they are approached by the police in contemporary society? And the answer is no. So that's just one example. You can't really teach criminal law anymore without talking about race, if you ever could. One time, um, 
that I can think of that I was in fear from a police officer. And um, Jack and I have talked about this. I mean, now that I'm older with gray hair and a mustache, if I'm wearing a suit and tie, I can pretty much go anywhere I want. Hardly anybody questions me. But I was uh, coming home from a uh, trip uh, years ago, and we were in a Suburban. I had all the kids in the back, our three kids. They were all young, my wife. And um, I guess a police officer thought I was driving erratically through this town, and he came up behind me at a high rate of speed and then cut me off to stop me. And I was shocked. And um, he got out and very aggressively asked me to exit the car immediately and keep my hands where I could, he could see them. Now, yeah, I've been a lawyer at that time for 15 years. I obviously knew all my rights. I deal with people in authority all the time. I was scared. I had no <laughs> idea what I had done and mm-hmm. why this guy was so mad at me. And I rolled down all the windows, and when he got up to it and saw the kids in their car seats and all the stuff in the truck, and his attitude changed in a heartbeat. And I just mm-hmm. think of how people could go through their life constantly in fear of having that happen to them, because the one time I did stuck with me forever. Yes. I mean, there's so much to say in response to that. You know, there's a whole growing body of research documenting the extraordinary psychological trauma um, that black and brown adolescents experience um, in these moments or even in anticipation of these moments. Mm -hmm. Um, The research shows that young um, black and Latinx children who have been the target of police contact or um, live in hyper uh, surveilled neighborhoods report high rates of fear, anxiety, depression, um, hopelessness. They become hypervigilant, meaning that they're always on guard, never trusting police officers. Um, And that distrust of police officers transfers over to other adult authority figures. So it's a real living and lasting um, trauma that they experience. And they experience it even if they're not the direct target, but that they see it and they hear about it. And your story is so like my heart just dropped as you got to the end of the story. Because as you said, as soon as the officer looks in, he sees you and immediately the scenario changes. There have been stories across the country where, and very recent, you know, a woman, I believe she was in Wisconsin, and I have to look it up, I write about it in the book. She's got four girls, four, um, maybe even five black girls, you know, ages 16 or younger in the car. And they mistake her car for a car that had a, a warrant out. Um, and they um, get to the car and inst- they look in, they see her with four kids. By the way, they were on the way to the nail salon to get their <laughs> nails done. And the police officer orders everyone out of the car, including the children, and orders them, you know, face down on the concrete, on the, on the asphalt. Um, and waits until they, um, for over two hours, while they run the tags and realize that they had the, the entirely wrong car. So that outcome for this black woman and these um, four or five little girls um, was radically different. Um, and just, you know, it just breaks my heart that that the police officers couldn't see that they were not a danger, that they were not a threat. They didn't need to be removed from that car. What kind of I'm sorry, did you? No, go ahead. What kind of things, without getting too personal, do your clients, these kids, have to say about what they think about cops? Oh, wow. A- and, the, um, and the system in general. Yeah. So I have this um, chapter in my book called The Contempt of Cops. 
Um, and it is an entire chapter uh, devoted to sort of your very question, Jack. What do kids say? What do kids think? Um, and the phrase contempt of cop, as you two probably know, is a play on this idea of contempt of court when you're supposedly disrespectful to the judge in a courtroom. Um, but contempt of cop is that same thing. It's the in the same way. This is this is what I say. The, the book is called The Rage of Innocence, and it is the rage that everyone should have when any one child is deprived of the opportunity to be a child. But the title also has some nuances. And one of the nuances is the rage that black and brown children have when they're told over and over and over again that they're criminal right and that they don't belong and that they're to be feared and so what i say you ask me so what if, what do black kids say in response or how do they feel Here's the deal. Any child who has an ounce of self-respect, an ounce of dignity, um, an ounce of self-worth learns to speak out and resist those labels. Right. Mm -hmm. um, they resist that criminalization. And so they they tell officers, you know, um, that they you know don't appreciate the way that they are being treated. Right. They don't appreciate the trauma and the fear and the anxiety with which they live. And, you know, I always say these are teenagers. And so they don't say, Mr. Officer, I'm so disappointed in how you've treated me. <laughs> Instead, they sound like kids. Right. They're emotional and reactive. So it may come out as profanity. It may come out as anger. And so it becomes really a battle of the egos between that officer and that kid. And so sometimes you get these these sort of um, exchanges between an officer and a child that escalates from like zero to 100 um, in, you know, in a minute um, because the officers don't de-escalate. But you know, they tell me often about the trauma. Um, here's the last story I'll tell you is about a client, very short story. A client of ours called shortly before the pandemic. He called, I was in the office, phone rings, and he's asking us, is there a warrant for my arrest? And we're like, well, that's such an odd question because we had just been to court the day before. Had there been a warrant for his arrest, certainly um, he would have been arrested. So it come to, we come to find out he had been sitting in his window looking out and he could see a police car parked in front of his um, uh, apartment complex um, for the last two hours. He was convinced that the officers were out there waiting for him. And, you know, people who, who you know, don't really understand what it's like to live in his world will say, well, he, if he hadn't done anything wrong, then he wouldn't be afraid to go outside. Um, but what they fail to understand is if you're living under constant surveillance and you're constantly being stopped for, um, you know, doing nothing at all, you really become traumatized. So this was a child. We could hear his mother in the background saying, oh boy, you're just being paranoid. And I immediately said, you know what? He's not being paranoid, he's traumatized um, and afraid to go outside, but that's what it looks like. And I would imagine that as a result, your clients would be extremely hesitant to ever call upon the police if they needed assistance. That's right, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yep, absolutely right. Chris, um, you're fortunate that you're joining us remotely because Jack also has a book and he forces it on all of our uh, guests and it's a book of all of his opinions, which uh, Jack wants everybody to know uh, his opinions, but um, 
<laughs> we appreciate. I'm, what are you talking about? I'm going to mail it to her. <laughs> All right, I'll be I'll be looking. I'll be looking. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading your book. It um it, it, it it's all of these uh, stories, real life stories of what we've been talking about, and it's uh, right. it sounds like it's going to be a great uh, read. Maybe a little uh, disturbing um, uh, to not have known or experienced these as is you know a white man in America. But uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we really do appreciate uh, the conversation and, and the awareness of these issues. Yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you both. I really appreciate your having me. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important legal or social justice issue, and we hope you join us so that it's not just us, but all of us seeking justice. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard, Tell a friend so that we can have more people joining us. Until then, so long. <laughs>